Welcome to the Words of Grace podcast, where we discuss faith journeys, fellowship and stories from across the Diocese of Sheffield. Each week we will feature guests from a broad range of backgrounds and traditions within the Church of England. Our mission is to delve deeper into matters of faith and to ask each guest what has drawn them to Christianity. I'm Ben Fern and I'm here with my colleague and co-host Paul Sheridan. You okay, Ben? I am, but I've dropped a clangor, I've realised, Paul. My, well, go, go early. Go with the confession early, Ben. So, I've introduced the podcast to my family. Good. They've listened since we've launched it. Yeah. Um, but when it got to the question, you asked me about my favourite film. Mm. Which was? Shawshank Redemption. You said that, yes. I thought that was a bit cheesy at the time, to be fair. But my mum and sister said, I was sure you were going to say Back to the Future. Okay. And now they've said it, I'm like, yes, why didn't I pick Back to the yeah, Future? Yeah, I can see that in you, actually. So yeah. I still love Shawshank Redemption, but I think for like a Friday night film that never gets boring each time you watch it, I'm going to revise my answer and go for Back to the Future. Okay. Well, as you, as you know, I'm quite a film buff as well. And a little confession from me, I have never watched the whole of Back to the Future. Sections of it. What? I've seen bits of it. I've never watched it full all the way through. Were you not hooked from the very start? Well, I'm a little bit older than you, Ben, and it probably came at a period of my life where I was quite sniffy about film. I've become much less sniffy as I'm older, and uh, because it probably wasn't in black and white with French subtitles, with, um, you know, uh, Serge somebody, Serge Aurier, even though he plays left back for Nottingham Forest now, um, in it. And I've, you've mentioned Nottingham Forest on the podcast. I know. What's this not going on? <laughs> You've come back from holiday and I'm dissing you already. I'm sorry, Ben. Not, I can't believe I said Nottingham Forest in the same room as you. Um, but yeah, I've never watched it back to the future. I've never watched the whole thing. And I sort of back where there's a, slightly as a badge of honour now. Do you know what I mean? That, you know, people talk about it. And I, I well, I wasn't even born when it came out, but it's still... <laughs> <laughs> I can anyway. sense agreement from our guest as well. On there back is. The there was a too. nod and a little sound, a little gasp of horror on it. It's a very, very good film, one of my favourites, but uh, yeah, I don't think I've got a favourite movie. I love so many movies. Yeah, that's the, oh, yeah. That's, that's stopped the last 20 minutes of the podcast then, isn't it? <laughs> right there. That's so, why I panicked though when Paul asked me the question, I was like, what film do you go for? Well, let's introduce our guest, shall we? Let's go for it. Great. Uh, our guest today is, is Tim Gill, who is uh, vicar at St. Mary's Ecclesfield. Yes. Uh, and we have a brief bio. Uh, can I just, Ooh, yes, uh, and also a, a priest in charge at St. Mark's Grenoside, Grenoside. Yes. where I'm oversight minister. Yes. We love these titles at the moment, don't they? Yes. The Sheffield Diocese is throwing titles around like anything. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Um, originally from North Yorkshire. Yes. Ordained in York Minster in uh, July 1992 by John Hadgood. Yes. Uh, and Tim has worked in parishes in Yorkshire and in Liverpool for the past 31 years. Yes. Married to Mandy with two grown-up children. We love dogs and have had Labradors for many years, says Tim. At the moment, we have a very lazy chocolate lab called Reggie. Yeah, Reggie, if you're listening, and I'm sure you are, I don't mind that you've been called lazy. I thought that was a little bit preemptive, but okay, lazy. Uh, he is ve- he's the only dog I've ever had who doesn't want to go for a walk ever. <laughs> I, make him, I make him every six o'clock every morning, we get up and go out for a 45 minute walk and he's grumpy for the first 10 minutes. <laughs> Tim's hobbies and interests include walking with his dog, rock music, karate and study, studying theology. Yes. So welcome. Thank you. Yes, makes me sound more interesting than I really am actually. <laughs> well, so it might be a short episode then. No, Tim, well, one of the many interesting things about you, so I've obviously met Reggie, who's a gorgeous dog, 
But when I've interviewed you a couple of times at your house, you've got reams of books. But also, I did notice, I think, a TARDIS. So you're a fellow oh, yes. Doctor Who fan. Yeah, a massive Doctor Who fan. I've been watching since Pat Trouton's last season. Uh, seen every episode, got everything that's available on DVD. Still think Pat Trouton's the best Doctor. Controversial. That's just not mm. my first question. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah. who's your favourite Doctor and why yeah. is it David Tennant? <laughs> David Tennant's okay. I mean, of the modern ones, he's, he's pretty good. Um, I don't think he's as good as Matt Smith, but he's he's getting there. But yeah, I mean, I, I think in order it would be probably Troughton, Baker, Tennant, Smith, Pertwee, McCoy. Oh no, no, no! Yeah, so yeah. Baker fan had a massive scarf yeah, when I was a yeah, kid. Yeah, my mum lived for the whole scarf yeah, thing. Yeah, got a scarf. But then Pertwee, I love Pertwee. I met say. Pertwee and I like Pertwee, but it, but he 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 sort of turned Doctor Who into James Bond. You know what wow. I mean? Okay. It was with the, he had the sort of, what was the yeah. sleeper hold thing he yeah. did and the, yeah. and the karate yeah. and sort of. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I suppose that was Venetian around the sort of hold yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So you are a doctor, I believe. Yes. Um, so N- not, was not that a, in, in... Not a useful one. <laughs> well, was the, PA, was the PhD in Doctor Who or... No, no, it was, it was mainly so I could tell people I'm the doctor. No. <laughs> I'd never get tired of that if I had no, that. No, no, me. That would be great. Um, I've, got a t- I've got a Doctor Who t-shirt that says, trust me, I'm the Doctor. and <laughs> I can definitely wear it. Uh, no, it's in, um, it's in theology on a, a guy called Thomas Torrance, who was a, um interpreter of Karl Barth and, tra- and edited the translation of Barth's um, Church Dogmatics, which is how I got into him. And um, just looking at his doctrine of revelation, so it's an, it's in epistemology. So I wrote an, an enormous thesis. At one point, I think it was about uh, 180,000 words long. I, I had to cut out whole chapters. I got it down to 80,000 words, and it's still far too long. Um, <laughs> I just verbose. And has your wife read it? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she wouldn't even proofread it for me. <laughs> She should have sort of used bluff language and said, I, I liked all of it. And, you know, yeah. the premise was very compelling. She should have yeah. pretended no, to. No, no, no. She, she does, yeah, she, she's very honest. <laughs> and yeah. you were mentioning um, before we started about the thesis you wrote, yes. a change of opinion. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it, I was arguing in favour of, of a, a version of critical realism that, that you find in Torrance, which is based on a, a philosopher of science called Michael Polanyi and his reading of Bart. And I, I thought that was what I agreed with as, a, as critical realism. But sort of subsequently, with having done a lot more reading, I think I disagree now. So I'm, I'm, I, these days I describe myself as a Rortean pragmatist. So Richard Rorty famously said, truth is what your peers will let you get away with. And I think he's absolutely right. I mean, it wasn't, he put it in a flippant way, but I think he's absolutely right that, that truth is negotiated among a peer group. Um, and while there is objective truth out there, all we can ever have is our interpretation of it. And we negotiate that with our peer group. It's not just an individual doing their own thing. So it is what your peers will let you get away with. You even have that sort of debate in the Bible, don't you? You think about when Jesus is before Pilate and Pilate says, what is truth? Yeah, exactly, yeah. I, see, I think Jesus was probably a rotting pragmatist as well. So <laughs> Perhaps you should do a Tim Gill revisited thesis. Uh, well, no, I can't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point in your life did you get that heavily into theology then was that something that had been with you since you were younger when you went to church when you first came across because what brought you to that point um, really well gosh um i became a christian when i was 17 and um finished the a levels i was doing went back for a year and did an a level in biblical studies and another one in english lit so i could do a biblical studies church history degree and where was this tim uh, where were you at this uh, time i was at 
sixth form college in Gisborough in North Yorkshire. And then I did my first degree in Newcastle in biblical studies and church history, which I loved. And just got into it and really, really loved it. And then just kept reading and reading. And uh, at some point I thought I might as well do a PhD just to get some sort of depth in, in one area. Sadly, I've, I've kept up a lot of reading and thinking, but I've not kept up any writing. So I'm hoping to kickstart that again next year because I've got a 12-week study leave. So I'm going to work on that. Well, it's called a sabbatical, but I intend to use this study leave. Uh, yeah. And one thing we asked him about um, sort of faith journeys and when people came to faith, we asked about their sort of family background and whether it was the traditional, oh, my parents are Christians or vicars or not. What was the case with you? Uh, well, my family didn't go to church. My mum, prior to, long before I was born, had been a regular Methodist um, and but I think I'd been a Sunday school teacher as a Methodist, but by the time she was married and had children, we didn't go to church. I was sent to Sunday school as a child and stopped going as soon as I could. And then I, I became a Christian by uh, reading Matthew's Gospel. So my younger brother had started going to church because he fancied somebody from our village who went to church. He got confirmed. I shared a bedroom with him, and there was a new um, Good News Bible on the shelf. And one evening, I don't even know why I did it, I just picked it off and randomly excuse me, started reading. Uh, fortunately, it was Matthew's Gospel, not Leviticus, I started reading. <laughs> that could have been an interesting uh, interpretation. Yes, it could. <laughs> Although famously, didn't Rob Bell start his whole first year of teaching on Leviticus, did the whole first year at, his first, at the first church he pastored, I believe? Yeah. Start, he started at the beginning and went through it, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, uh, typically, Rob Bell, I think that was as, as a, a, an affectation almost, but yeah. did the whole of Leviticus as a start-off. I, I suspect his theology was more Rob Bell than Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> might have been a bit more robust than it might be now, although other, other, other interpretations are available. So which, was it all of Matthew's gospel that you found compelling? Was it a particular passage? Um, the the bit that really stuck in my mind is is uh, from Matthew twenty five where Jesus said you know whatever you do for the least of these you do for me and it's sort of I, I just uh, and, and having read it um, I then had a, a direct um, experience of God I mean I didn't know what on earth was going on but it was a very very powerful life changing sort of experience, direct experience of God which made me realise um, I believed in God and I thought God was calling me to do some sort of full-time vicaring sort of work. I did know our local vicar quite well because we used to um, get involved in taking food parcels up to striking miners and things like that. So, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, completely life-changing. Not literally a road to Damascus, but metaphorically a road to Damascus experience. And very much that sort of wanting to do a social good as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that's what uh, put me on the path to ordination. So I said nothing to anyone for about six months and continued nicking my brother's Bible to read it. And then I thought, this is serious. So I went to see my friend Dave Penny, who was the local vicar, and said, you're not going to believe this, Dave, but I think I want to be a vicar. <laughs> and what did he say? Well, he wasn't surprised, which is the thing that surprised me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a good man. And then what happened from that? You... Went um, on some sort of discernment process. Yes, from there, yeah. I went to see the DDO and joined the Fellowship of Vocation, and then eventually, um, during the middle of my first degree, I went to do an Ackham selection conference, as it was in those days, and then um, took a year out, did some work, voluntary work in a church in Manchester, and then got back, uh, went to theological college. So you really rocked up to discernment, ordination, theological college with just off the back of that moment, really, yeah. Of, of, yeah. of having picked up a Bible, yeah. reading Matthew's Gospel, experiencing something of, a, of God, yeah. 
and then said, this is my route. Yeah. That's, that is an interesting moment, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's also been, I was saying, it's been fascinating from who we've had on the podcast so far, because quite often we've been having people on like yourself who haven't had the stereotypical upbringing with, you know, I was brought up in church from, from birth, essentially. And it, but they have had that defining moment that set them on course for the rest of their life. Yeah. St- I think statistically, um, more people who are in full-time ministry have had a Damascus Road-style experience than the average number of, than, 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 than in, among the average Christian population. I suppose the sort of the intensity of it is what leads to feeling the call, I suppose. So, theological college? Yeah. And from there, straight into some level of curacy? Yeah, it was curacy in Hull. Oh, in Hull? Yes, yeah. Um, and that's, that's where I started doing karate as well. Uh, so... <laughs> Well, there was a curate. I've, the streets uh, of Hull drove you to karate. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I, 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 I can't even remember how I heard about it, but I decided I wanted to join a karate club, and there was a really good one I heard of in town. So I went along for about four years. I got to the level I'm at now, and then when I left Hull, I didn't find another club I liked. So I um, did nothing for about twenty, twenty-five years, and then started again. Uh, when I moved to Sheffield, because I heard about the club in Chapel Town where I go to now, started right back at the beginning, and I'm I'm now uh, I've got two more belts to do before I can start training for my black. Have you ever tried to weave in not at the parishioners, but weave in your karate skills into a sermon somehow? Or um, I, th- I think a couple of times I've I've talked about <laughs> when I've been <laughs> completely had seven bells knocked out of me, or breaking an arm or something, breaking a wrist or something like, or breaking ribs or something like that. But uh, yeah, not not terribly often. Um, I do sometimes say, um, as soon as the service is over, I've got to get moving because I've got a competition at, uh, in Barnsley to get to. <laughs> most of the competitions are on a Sunday, so um, I, I usually sign up for them and say, you know, if six people come and try and book a wedding, then I won't get there. So it's a provisional booking. But yeah, it's Sunday afternoon's not too bad. Uh, I can usually get there and get back for the evening service. So how long were you in Hull then? So started um, your karate there, curacy I did a three-and-a-half-year curacy, then I did two years as a priest in charge of a couple of small churches, and then I moved to York, so I was about six years in Hull. Um, yeah, and that's where I met my wife and got married, and where our two children were born. Um, yeah. And then now, I can't believe it, I've got a... How old's Thomas? He's uh, 20, just turned 28. Yeah, he's getting married next year, so... Yeah, and uh, our daughter's... Now 25? let's move on. <laughs> For the listeners I out cut there, cut down the, um, the yeah, delaying yeah, time. Yeah, so yeah, I think we can think. cut a little bit of that delay because yeah. there was a slight look of panic in Tim's face <laughs> as he tried to remember how old his beloved daughter was. But I can tell you that her, this is the only birthday in the house that I remember always, including my own. She was born on the anniversary of Karl Barth's death, so I always remember she was born on the tenth of December. Yeah. There you yeah, go, that's I, good parenting. I, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure she's impressed, that's why you remember that. Well, she does know that's why I remember. <laughs> I, have, I have more and more than one occasion forgotten my own birthday. Yeah. So. <laughs> that, see, that is very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you get older like me, Ben, actually, you do start to just, they just start to blur, to yeah. be fair. Yeah. Seriously. I've got kids in my 30s, so yeah, I feel your pain. Yeah. You're obviously a very deep thinker. There's a lot going on behind the screen. You know, there's a lot, going on there how has that impacted the way that you do parish ministry because parish ministry sometimes as as we know we are all involved around churches can literally be about you know ethel's dog yep at some yep. point yeah I, I, I think in two ways i mean i think first of all just just you know some of the areas that i do enjoy studying 
to do with uh, you know God and suffering gives you some sort of insight so I mean I've got you know one or two quotes that I will use in in funerals but also I think it helps me just to think through what I'm doing in pastoral ministry but also to be honest preaching far too many clergy have stopped reading and you can tell I mean I've sat in when I've not been in church on a Sunday I've had a Sunday off in some churches and I've, I've heard you know sermons that are so slight they are see-through and you know you should just blooming well read <laughs> you don't have to read heavy theology as long as you keep reading and thinking you can read poetry you can read literature but read and think and actually don't just trot out you know light sermons that have got no depth to them i thought you did a really interesting so following on from this term you did a tweet i think it was today or recently on how to conduct funerals i think you were joining in a discussion about yeah, how best yeah. to and i thought you had a really interesting reflective view on that I've, I've done lots of them. <laughs> I, I've probably done, going on for a couple of thousand funerals in the past 30 years. When I was in Hull, we used to do two to three hundred a year, the two of us, when I was a curate in this enormous parish. And I'm, I'm the only curate I know who did uh, children's funerals regularly. I did two murder victims while I was a curate. Um, and... You know, you you can you you've got to think about what you're doing and 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 how you you know how you approach the people doing it. And I think, yeah, um, I think the other thing that that gives me that sort of perspective is that my dad died when I was 15, and that's one of the things it never goes away, but it but it does inform my hopefully my pastoral ministry uh, as well. I, mean, I, I think funerals are really important, and I think that the Church of England nationally isn't giving them in pastoral ministry generally but funerals in particular i don't think it's giving them the prominence that we should have i think there's too much sort of management speak and not enough pastoral care speak in the church of england nationally um so i mean one of the things we're doing in the parish we i've been meaning to do it for years and i just grasped the nettles so starting at the end of this year we're going to start a bereavement cafe uh, we don't do a huge number of funerals we do 20 to 30 a year but we're going to write to the past two years worth of funerals invite them and then every month on a Saturday morning, probably 10.30 till 12 or um, 11 till 12.30, uh, just have a, a, a bereavement cafe where people can come and talk about their experiences of loss and grief and know that nobody's going to be offended, nobody's going to say, oh, you should have got over it by now. And, you know, it might be someone who died 30 years ago. You, uh, to quote my favourite singer, Nick Cave, you know, grief doesn't have a sell-by date. Um, it was being interviewed by um, Justin Welby. And he was talking about not only losing his two children in the recent years, but also his dad, who died when he was, uh, I think, late teens. And he said, you know, grief doesn't have a sell-by date. I thought, absolutely, I'm putting that on our posters. That was um, a great interview yeah, with, well yeah, with Welby yeah, and Nick yeah. Cave. I thought it was... Uh, <clears throat> we have discussed the, that series, and, and sometimes we're not always being that great about that series, but that interview is a really, really fab one. There is also a great James Acaster pod... Right. with Nick Cave because James Adcoster Acaster reckons that a certain year is the best year of music ever you can go and find that out there yourself but he talks about the Nick Cave album of that year Ooh. I'll send you the link is it Boatman's Call? no it's not I'll Ooh. send you the link Tim oh, and nice. other people out there it's a great right. podcast but that is a really good discussion on that album I think it's one of those things isn't it with when you lose a loved one personally I don't actually find the funeral the worst bit it can be this sounds a bit macabre, but it can be quite nice in a way because you're gathering together people you might not have seen for a while, friends and family. It's those moments after, and I think if you're more removed from that, the temptation can be, oh, it's over with now, the funeral's done, it's fine. But as you've said, it can be little moments, yeah. totally innocuously, where it yeah. hits you again. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, talking to my son about getting married, I thought, you know, my dad didn't see any of his children getting married, let alone his grandchildren. 
and he would have been a fantastic granddad. And you, it's not just what he's lost, it's what they've lost. Yeah, um, I'm actually, um, it's my mother-in-law's funeral tomorrow, so that is dating this episode, and I'm taking the funeral. And um, I took uh, her husband, my father-in-law's funeral a few years ago. I did my own mother's funeral um, last year, 18 months ago. And um, <clears throat> my father died in his early 70s. And I thought at the time, because I was much younger then, thinking 20 years ago, thinking, oh, he's had a good innings and so on. And as I hit 61, 62, I realized that 71 is very young. And he was a fit man until that point. Um, and as you get to that point where your parents have gone and your in-laws have gone and your, uh, your brother's in-laws have all gone, you suddenly th think of things in different ways. I, I hope you don't mind me telling this story, but we looked at some pictures after my mum passed away, and there was most of them we'd labelled me and my brother, but there was a picture of somebody sat next to my mum and dad, and I don't know who that is. And my brother and I looked at each other, we will never know who that person was because the other people in that photo are not there anymore. And that hits me now, even after that period, the, the funeral is one thing, but there is those moments when you suddenly think, oh, I will never know that piece of information because those people involved in that moment are not here anymore. And that is quite a sobering thought for that moment. An old minister of mine used to do bereavement services on a regular basis mm. where people could just sit yeah. and be. Yeah, we, 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 I started doing sort of All Souls-style memorial services when I was in Hull just after I'd finished my curacies. I've been doing them for nearly 30 years. And then I recently, in the past 10 years, started um, having a Sunday once a month where we write to the families of the previous month's funerals and invite them just to the main service, just in the middle of the service, just light a candle for those who died and pray for them and their family. It'll only take a couple of minutes. Um, and so I thought the next stage is we've got to get the bereavement cafe started. So that's the next thing. Then once we've got the wedding ministry sorted, uh, the funeral ministry sorted, then we're going to look at weddings and baptisms because, again, we've got quite a significant um, engagement with our community through weddings and through baptisms. We do about 20 weddings, probably 30 baptisms a year. So put all of that together, and we have a quite a high footfall in church of people who don't regularly come but see St. Mary's as their church. And, um, you know, we, we engage with them at those important moments of life. And I think as a church the church of england has that opportunity and we need to capitalize on it while we've still got the opportunity in terms of of our place in in in, in the life of the nation um, and i think we are largely neglecting it does that inform your ministry as well tim you know with being quite bold and not necessarily doing things the way they've always been done but actually looking at things and thinking we should be bolder and more experimental and doing it differently uh, yes and no. i mean i'm fairly traditionalist i mean i uh, yeah I'm fairly traditional. I mean, I'm a, I describe myself as a sacramental Anglican. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think we're all too busy looking at what some of the big exceptional churches are doing. I think if, if only we do that in our church, we're going to be like that. We're not. And that's fine. I wouldn't want to be a bishop today. Um, and I understand why bishops are anxious about money and numbers. But I just think we should stop being so anxious as a church and just be a bit, lot more laid back and get on with the job of, you know, pastorally ministering to the nation. I think that's what we should do, and that's what I try to do. And I don't worry whatever happens. You know, it's in God's hands, not mine, not the bishop's. <laughs> don't tell Bishop Peter I said that. <laughs> he is on here in a couple of weeks' time, actually. <laughs> we have a brace of bishops coming up on, on the same day. So, yeah, so he does listen to all of these, so that's fine. And he marks them out of 10 as well. <laughs> we get regular emails. <laughs> Disclaimer. Uh, but you know, I, I find it really fascinating that there's, there's obviously a deep, 
de- a depth to your theology that is imp- of importance to you, that and, and that you're obviously thinking out these things, but that also that has to bleed into the day-to-day stuff of parish work. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think I'm increasingly um, influenced by um, some of the, the the early Greek theologians who who read the new, you know, what the New Testament was in the language that they spoke, and their reading of New Testament theology is, is very different from from ours. Uh, and I mean, I don't think I could do the pastoral ministry I do if I didn't go with that, that sort of interpretation of Paul, which I've held for many years. You know, that Paul teaches very clearly the, you know the reconciliation of all things in Christ not just all people all things in Christ and I genuinely believe that so when I'm doing a funeral service I'm talk, I'm, I'm you know I don't know what the state of anybody's soul is and it's none of my business it's God's business but I, I can preach the hope of Christ to absolutely anybody and I have done it to people who I've known were pretty horrible people um I did a funeral in holy might have to excuse my language I'll, I'll try and bleat it bleat it out but um I did the funeral visit, and the son said, you know, my dad wasn't a nice man. He was a, an alcoholic. He used to beat us every day of our lives when we were children. He used to beat my mother up. And, you know, we all hate him. And I did his funeral service, and I stood there and said, you know, I'm not going to tell you that John was a nice person. He's not. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, he depends on the grace of God no less than I do. And if I ever get to stand in God's kingdom, it'll be because, because of God's grace and love, not because of anything I've done. And it's the same for your dad. And it's the same for every one of us. And then at the graveside, the son, <laughs> so he stayed uh, while the uh, grave diggers were filling in. So I stayed with him and he said, I just came to make sure that B was dead. <laughs> I said, you probably think that's horrible. I said, I don't think that's horrible at all. I don't blame you for how you feel because your dad was horribly robbed you of your childhood. But that doesn't mean he's beyond God's love and mercy. And I don't think anyone is. I think that a lot of theologies that are in the ascendancy in the West, particularly through evangelicalism, have have got a very diminished understanding of God. I think they think that God can be defeated by human will, which is utter nonsense. I think the Greek fathers were absolutely right. You know, um, the victory of, you know, God's victory in Christ is greater than any evil. Um, And uh, Irenaeus said, you know, we can hope that even the devil will one day repent and be in the kingdom. And I think, yeah. Absolutely. I think, I think God's, the, the power of God's love in Christ is big enough for that. Um, and I think a lot of our theologies and the gods that we sell to people are too small. I can see the passion with which you said that. So I suspect in, in the present climate of, of discussions around faith and inclusivity and so on, that brings you into conflict with with certain sections, not just of the Church of England, but of, as you say, the growing certain churches, uh, churches that might be seen as aspirational or intentional. Oh, yeah, um, I absolutely um, would wholeheartedly support 100% um, inclusive marriage. Um, I don't think there's actually anything in the Bible that is even relevant to it. Um, I I don't think there's one verse in the New Testament that is relevant to the um, equal marriage debate. Um, there isn't um and i think so you know it basically do do we believe that god's grace is big enough or not and i do i'm, I'm just struck you know i'm just struck by how uh, passionate you're speaking about it. and i think you know in, in the case of what you mentioned with the funeral you took in hull i think it'd be tempting for other people perhaps to try and almost skirt over the awkwardness but i think the fact you addressed it head on i think is really really telling you've got to be honest people know when you're like when you're not being honest um they do, and they can tell, and I think, yeah, it's important. If we can't at least be honest, then I don't know what we're doing being 
Christian, you know, ministers of the gospel. On to St. Mary's Ecclesfield. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's a weird segue. That was a seamlessly done, then. We, we've, we've gone quite deep. Tim has been very passionate. And now it's like um, um, This Morning Britain. And now, and now a discussion about talking. No, well, I think this you're is not right. news. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this next topic might be as deep and thoughtful, but I was going to say, you know, in terms of um, your parish with St. Mary's Ecclesfield, what are some of the main needs of the area what are some of the main pressing issues um i think in terms of the church we are a very elderly church um and the people are lovely um i must say it's been it was a really positive lovely experience uh, moving to sheffield um and becoming vicar at st mary's and then again um, moving uh, taking on st mark's as well yeah lovely people uh, passionate about the church, passionate about their neighbours, wondering how we can impact our neighbours more. And then we look at our region, there the are lots of things we can't do. It'd be great to do all sorts of things we just don't have the resources for. So, I mean, my, the thing I keep saying to everybody is, you know, we do you do what you can, not what you can't. So we're looking at, you know, what can we do in terms of ministry to the funeral ministry? How can we engage more with baptism families? How can we engage more with a, with a few young families and young people who come along to church? And, you know, we're working on it. Um, and if there was an easy, obvious answer, every church would be doing it and they'd all be full. And so from pulling that back into what we just discussed, do you feel that sometimes we're more obsessed with ourselves? We're a bit like the, like the Westminster bubble they talk about, where we talk about ourselves all the time. We're actually you have a community that needs to know the love of God and the love of Christ and that actually the community out there deserves our love and grace and, and hope. I mean, one of the best things we do at St Mary's um, is we have a, a community cafe in church twice a week. And I, I, I usually only get along there on a Tuesday because my usual day is Friday. But I go I drop in there for an hour or more, sit and chat with people who see St. Mary's as their church. They don't come to church. Some of them don't know whether they believe or not. Some of them definitely don't. And, you know, we meet and we talk. We talk about all sorts of things. It can be very light stuff or actually quite heavy stuff. Um, and it's great. And then at St. Paul's, sorry, St. Paul's, I think, bringing to gear uh, at St Mark's we have um, a toddler group that's similar it's open to the area and I go up there and wander around and you know cuddle babies and talk to parents and grandparents and again sometimes it's very light conversations sometimes it can be very deep and I think that's they're, they're the two most important engagements in my week apart from leading worship and preaching. One thing we've not necessarily touched on much on the podcast so far is sort of conversations with people who aren't Christians. So we've had Dr. Sally Myers on the podcast who calls herself a failed atheist. So she's a very prominent atheist, um, but has obviously come to faith. And she did also have that sort of Damascus Road moment. Have you had many conversations with not just atheists, but quite strident atheists? And how do you have those sort of discussions? Um, not terribly many. I mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, I know. I know atheists. I don't know many strident atheists. It's bec- I, th- I think I don't engage with them because I don't like any form of fundamentalism, whether it's a sort of, you know, um, Dawkins-style fundamentalism or um, Christian fundamentalism or any fu- fundamentalism. I can't be doing with it. Um, so, I mean, the, the atheists I know are actually quite thoughtful. Most of them are as embarrassed about um, Richard Dawkins as I am about some Christians. <laughs> so, Swings and roundabouts, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, they say, oh, we're not all like that, you know. And, and, and I mean, a lot of them are actually quite spiritual and interested. Um, and, you know, we'll say, yeah, I, I, you know, I see what, where you're coming from. It, you know, it does nothing for me, but yeah. Um, so, I, as I say, I, I don't know any militant atheists in that sense because I, don't, I just... There's no point in arguing with any form of fundamentalist, so I don't bother. 
Well, I think there can be misconceptions on both sides. I think that questioning curiosity can be healthy, whereas the fundamentalism you mentioned on both sides can be guilty of saying, no, this is this is the way, no questioning, end of discussion. For, 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 I think for both, it's an excuse not to actually have to think for yourself. And I, I, I'm, I'm impatient with both of them. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I often say baptisms, and when I, when I do my, I, I do baptisms as a separate service at St. Mary's, and, and one, of, one of the sermon, one of the things I often say in the sermon, I always do a very short sermon, and I say, you know, my job isn't to tell you what to think or what to believe, my job is to get you to think about important things. And, you know, we're talking about birth and life and what it's all about. This is a big thing. You know, what, what, what are you, how do you live your life? What's it about? What are your goals? I get people to think those things. As my job isn't to tell people what to think or what to believe. It is to get them to ask interesting questions. And I think if, it, if people are pursuing truth, eventually they're going to meet God. So, yeah, get people to think, including people in the church. <laughs> That's a great line. If people are going to meet God if they're searching for truth is a great line. Tim, there's been fascinating discussion. Really, really great. Um, we normally sort of get to this sort of point and then throw a few, you know, stuff outside of the faith journey, sometimes overlaps. We've already done films, but um, I sense somebody that's interested in music. Um, anybody that mentions Nick Cave that early in a podcast is interested in music beyond the norm. So, um, you know, favorite, favorite bands, for oh, instance. Oh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, no question. No question. Um, but I also, I love the Dead Kennedys. Uh, they're the only punk band who, of that era, have got the same energy that they had in the 1980s. Not the same lineup, sadly, but yeah, they are brilliant. And next year I'm meeting with a couple of friends from school, one of whom I've not seen for about 40 years. And we're going to um, Newcastle City Hall because it's the 50th anniversary of the Stranglers. So we're going to see the Stranglers. Is, is Hugh Cornwall still in the Stranglers? No, now, sadly, he's, he's no. gone completely bonkers. Oh, right. And it, was it uh, Jean-Jacques... Yeah. Is he still there? He's still there, yeah, JJ. And they've they've had a a lead singer who's been with them now, I think, longer than Hugh Cornwell was. Yeah. Uh, Raddus No Vegas was a a big album for me at um, at, uh, sort of six form time. I still listen to that album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I listen listen to a very, very wide range of music. Uh, Yeah, but I love music, really love music. Do you play an instrument? No, I can't even clap in time. I was at a, a Springsteen gig with our Thomas, my oldest son, and... There was tens of thousands of people all clapping in tune, and I was just slightly out, like uh, Jonesy coming to attention in Dad's Army. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't sing in tune, I can't play an instrument, and I can't even clap in time, but I love music. Right. So what was the last concert you went to? Uh, what was the last one we went to? Um, Dead Kennedys. Yeah, Dead Kennedys. Probably their last European tour. I mean, sadly, still doing the same. I think it was the same play set as we, when we saw them last, which was before lockdown in Leeds. Um, yeah, yeah. Thomas got me that as a Christmas present. Yeah, we don't um, we don't recommend or not recommend music on here. I, I'm not saying that many of our listeners are going to be digging out Dead Kennedys on Spotify. If you do, that's fine. But there would yeah. be a everyone, there would be a warning. Everyone should moment. listen to Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables. It's the best album of the 1980s. Yeah, we can discuss that after <laughs> the podcast. Uh, there are a number of albums that were released in the 1980s that kick that into touch. But anyway, no. <laughs> if you could pick a superpower, um, hmm. I'd love to be able to fly, you know. I really would love to be able to fly. I don't, yeah. Just to be able to soar above England and look down on it, yeah. Look down physically, not <laughs> snootily. <laughs> not like Paul did on Back to the Future when he was wearing it. <laughs> yeah, I was very sniffy. I'm, I, well, I'm a bit like uh, Tim in terms of music. I get a bit sniffy about music. But um, 
I suspect there's going to be some weighty tomes on the bedside table. Um, so what book or books have you got there at the moment um, that you're reading? As The main one is Douglas Campbell's um, rereading of Paul on Romans. It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And uh, yeah, absolutely convinced me of, of his rereading of Paul as an apocalyptic interpretation of Paul. Um, really suggest, well, more than suggesting, demonstrating that the whole Reformation debate between justification by faith or works is, is, is not relevant to how we read Paul or how we should read Paul. And it fits in, his, his apocalyptic rereading really fits in with how the Greek fathers read Paul, which was, uh, so yeah, I've just picked up to read on holidays, big book on Pauline dogmatics. So that's my holiday reading. But I'm also reading um, Catherine Fox's latest Linford novel. I'm not just saying that because Pete's our bishop, right, right. Uh, which is very good. yourself <laughs> now after your earlier comments. That's right, which, yes. which, there's three or four, isn't there? Five. Five. Yeah. Oh, I, it's I it's very four. good. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Um, I'm also reading... Um, Oh, I've forgotten the name of it now. Uh, it's a book on the um, history of uh, science and religion. Really, really good by Nick Spencer. Begins with an M. Can't remember the name of it. And um, the, oh, gosh, I can't remember, uh, who, the, the, the biog of um, Oppenheimer that was the basis of the movie. What did you think of the film? I thought it was fantastic. I'm not sure if it's as good as the 1980 BBC TV series, which has just been rebroadcast on BBC4. Uh, and I play, so I'm, uh, I'm recording it, so I'm going to watch that. But I remember watching that with my dad, and then I watched it when it was repeated again a few years after he died. Um, I feel the same about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, you see. I don't think the film is good as the Alec Guinness TV series. But that's yeah, I agree with you, yeah. yeah. I agree with so you. So have you seen The Other Side of Oppenheimer, which, of course, is Barbie? No. <laughs> Never which will. I can highly recommend, Never personally. Will. And my daughter <laughs> likes it, but, yeah, it's not my sort of thing. Yeah, well, don't keep reinforcing the patriarchy, Tim. You've got to get out there, mate. <laughs> There. It can be Kenuff is the yeah. pun that's going on around yeah. the moment. Um, any, anything you're binging at all at the moment? Any TV series or box sets? <laughs> yeah. Um, my son, um, when he was, I think he was about seven, I got him into Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> and I had all the, the box sets of DVDs. And for, uh, for Christmas this year, he bought me um, tickets to go to the Crucible because there's somebody from Edinburgh Fringe who was doing the, all seven seasons of Buffy. In an hour and 20 minutes as a solo, it was hilarious. And so it got me re so I'm rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I mean, I think I'm in season five now. Um, Very good. It's brilliant. It's aged pretty well, actually. <laughs> On that bombshell. <laughs> Or perhaps one of the most wet, well-read people we've had in this podcast so far is the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It might go on the bio, I think. Tim, it's been great to spend some time with you. Thanks for being so passionate and so open. And uh, it's been a really great time. So just signing off from the Words of Grace podcast, as we've mentioned before, we do have an email address, wordsofgrace at sheffield.anglican.org. You can send your uh, comments or uh, suggestions, or even if you're thinking that you'd like to take part in the podcast as well, please contact us. Um, and Ben and I are contactable through our diocese of uh, addresses as well. But Tim, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. See you next time.